0: From PRX.
1: You. D. The. Studio. That's it. You're right.
2: Studio.
0: 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt
3: Anderson.
1: I listen to it
3: on the uh, radio in my car. So
2: don't be sniffy about. I'm not pens. being sniffy. No, I think I you. Mean, no, no. You've got know. a nose for it. Oh gosh. Oh, wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the
4: show. What a fun way to dramatize what it means to be a writer.
1: Tell the story through his art. Our house took up a lot of the aesthetic of Good Night Moon. Keep listening.
2: Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. In 1949, 30-year-old J.D. Salinger let one of his stories be turned into a movie. It was so unsuccessful in every sense, such a fiasco, that Salinger refused to let filmmakers anywhere, anytime, near his work again. But refusing Hollywood just makes Hollywood love you all the more. And crypto-Salinger material still shows up in movies all the time. The children in Wes Anderson's movie The Royal Tenenbaums in 2001 had a lot in common with the Glass family children who appear in a lot of Salinger's fiction. And in Field of Dreams, the reclusive author character Terence Mann, played by James Earl Jones, was inspired by Salinger's reclusiveness.
5: I don't give interviews, and I'm no longer a public figure. I just want to be left alone. So back off.
2: Same thing in the movie Finding Forrester, with the reclusive author character played by Sean Connery. There'll be no questions about me, my family, or why there was only one book. But the new movie Rebel in the Rye has the most J.D. Salinger-esque character yet. J.D. Salinger. Why do we keep coming here? I can't stand all these flits and phonies. That's Nicholas Holt playing Salinger. It's the story of how Jerome David Salinger went from being an on the make, nightclubbing Manhattan undergraduate to serving in World War II and seeing the horrors of war to becoming the mythologized author of The Catcher in the Rock. All I know is how to be a writer. Rebel in the Rye is the directorial debut of the actor and remarkably successful screenwriter Danny Strong. As an actor, Strong appeared in lots of shows, including Gilmore Girls and Mad Men. He's co-creator and executive producer of the hit Fox series Empire, and he wrote the first two Hunger Games movies. He also wrote the screenplays for Recount, about the 2000 presidential election, and Game Change, about the 2008 presidential election. And prolific, productive, talented Danny Strong is here with me now. Welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. So, before we get to J.D. Sandra, I want to talk about uh, other stuff you've done. Empire, which you co-created with Lee Daniels uh, a few years ago. I believe you're a white guy. Sure. So um, they say.
4: <laughs> how, how, did, how did you come to do that? It was literally a random idea I had one day. I was in Los Angeles driving around, and uh, on the radio there was a a news piece about some massive deal Puffy had just closed. That would be Sean Puffy Combs. Exactly. Mr. Combs to you and I. I just thought (laughs) it was so simplistic. Uh, Hip-hop is really cool. I should do something in hip-hop. It was literally just that thought popping in my head. Um, It could be a musical, but it's a hip-hop musical. And then all of a sudden, I thought, oh, you know what I should do? I should do a hip-hop Meets King Lear or The Line in Winter. So, and then uh, literally once I thought that, which was about thirty seconds after Hip Hop is Cool, I should do something in Hip Hop. Uh, the whole idea flooded into my head.
5: Don't forget to thank your cookie on this historic occasion. Good Hello, Vernon, kiss my black ass.
2: You you directed uh, some of those episodes. Was the idea? Oh, I control this show with Lee Daniels. I'll get, I'll learn how to do it here, and then I can go make feature films.
4: Yeah. That was the hope is that I've I've been wanting to direct a feature for many years and had optioned this J.D. Salinger biography several years before Empire existed. So I knew that I wanted to direct. And then when Empire actually went, I thought, wow, this could be a perfect opportunity to get my feet wet is to direct an episode of Empire. And it was um, the studio. They have this rule that a first-time director can't direct a show in season one that was it and they said I can direct and then Lee Daniels uh said listen Danny I'm going to mama rose this bitch and he jammed it through and 2 days later they approved me to direct it
2: again another is that is that a is that a showbiz i mean it i expected the
4: showbiz term of art um i'm going to mama rose this bitch yeah. no that's a lee daniels term uh-huh. yeah uh
2: huh and Explain to our listeners who aren't familiar with the Broadway musical from the, from which it comes, what that
4: means. <laughs> so Mama Rose is uh, from the musical Gypsy, and she's the ultimate stage mother. Right. So the idea is that he was going to be the ultimate stage mother and make sure and I And you're got, Gypsy Rosalie? And I'm Gypsy Rosalie.
2: Um, so you read this uh, Salinger
4: biography because you had been a sal- fan of Salinger's fiction? Um, I was a fan. I'm not an obsessive fan. I think I bought it because he was this great American enigma when I was in high school. And I, as I was reading the book, I was bl- uh, so stunned by his story. I knew so little about him. It was literally all I knew was he'd written these works, and he was quote-unquote a recluse, and I knew a little bit. And the bit, voice of his generation. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. and the, a little bit about that. with
2: a young woman when he Joyce was all yes. right?
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that was basically it. Yeah. And um, when I saw that he was this charismatic, young, ambitious man of New York City, Um, At the Stork Club. Ladies, it's a pleasure to meet you.
3: I'm Jerome
4: David Stallinger. My friends call me Jerry. Which is the opposite of how you think of him, because you think of him as a recluse, if you don't know much about him. That he was always a hermit. Yeah, yeah. And instead he was this just, and it reminded me not only of myself, but of all my friends that are writers, of how ambitious he was, what he went through, all the rejection. Uh, And I thought, oh, what a fun way to dramatize... Uh, what it means to be a writer as I was reading it. And then all of a sudden, it takes a turn, which is World War II. And then the story went from, oh, this is fun, this is personal, to something that I found profound and sublime. The fact that The Catcher in the Rye, the story of a troubled teenager... Uh, who's probably narrating this from a mental institution, although some people disagree with that, but I my feeling is that's probably where he's narrating it from, was written... And you, can't, you indicate that. Yes, was written by a veteran who had seen the darkest horrors of... World War II of human existence. I mean, was it the first wave at a concentration camp? The combat he saw, he was the first, he was in D-Day, right? So, to me, that is, that the fact that this book that had changed so many lives, uh, millions of lives for decades, came from trauma. Um, Even though it's the story of this callow kid who's never seen anything rough. E- exactly, exactly. Um, although there's, when you know his story... Sprinkled throughout the book are moments that are so profound when you know that it was written by a veteran. So to me, that that felt uh, that it deserved to be a film. And it also, for me, uh, explained the enigma. It, it explained what happened to him, why he went to the woods, why he stopped publishing, but yet would write for 50 years. And that, for me, uh, his journey is that he reaches this writer nirvana, where it's the act of writing is all that matters. And and he wants nothing else. He does not want to publish. He does not want to sell books. He does not want success or fame. He just wants to write. And that is, I think, a very, very different way than your average perception of J.D. Salinger is, which is he's a weirdo recluse. Right. One presumes, and I, uh, tell me if I'm mistaken in this presumption, that J.D. Sandra would have hated the idea of any such film. Oh, of course. I mean, he would have he would have loathed it. I mean, this is literally the opposite of how he lived his entire life, so I guess that begs the question, well then why do it? And I think there are some people that are very offended about the film uh, that the film was made at all. My feeling is twofold. One, it would have been not very nice to do if he was alive, that this would have been very painful for him and would have caused him great angst and anger and who knows what it would have caused him. However, he's no longer with us. He's a major historical figure whose life deserves and will be explored, or he has been. The cat's already out of the bag. There was a right. documentary right. called Salinger. But more significantly than all of that, uh, I think his story uh, is potentially very inspiring to people uh-huh. very inspiring to writers to artists and to veterans or anyone that suffered drama right
2: um before you were a incredibly successful writer and before you were a director you were an actor? Do you still? Do you say I am an actor, or do you? Do you is that is that in the past now? Well, I still act um, from time to time. You're acting time. now, in a sense. I mean, yeah, right now. You, you suddenly
4: got on everybody's radar in Mad Men. You you, you played this uh, well. No, that was a a, Danny Mad, Siegel. Mad Men was after I'd quit acting. Really? Yeah. So I quit when my writing career kicked in, which was the script for Recount, the uh-huh, HBO right, movie. Right. And then that got made about the two thousand about election. the two thousand election. It got made, and then I became this in demand writer. Uh huh. And I moved to New York City, and I quit acting for two years. But uh, Mad Men happened several, a few years after I'd, quote, quit. And I had my acting manager kept trying to get me to come back and keep working. And then he got me an audition for Mad Men. He said, will you go on this one? And it was my favorite show. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And then I got the part.
2: And and you were wonderful again in that show near the end, in the in the 60s. Uh, oh, when I came
4: back man. as the movie producer? Yes. You're lucky I hate violence, man. Really, I
2: love it.
6: You know, I was a boxer. There's nothing like finding that magic spot that would drop a man to his knees.
4: You know, unless he's already starting there. <laughs> oh. That's my claim to fame is I punched Roger Sterling in the balls. Yeah. It's a career highlight. Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, Danny Strong, king of all media, <laughs> thank you for coming in.
4: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
2: Rebel in the Rye is now playing in theaters around the country. Coming up, the Dutch painter who everybody knows and everybody pronounces differently.
7: Can I say Van Gogh, by the way? Not Van Gogh. Is that okay? The actual uh, pronunciation is Van Gogh. Uh-huh. Well, I'm, I'm
2: certainly not going to say that. The husband and wife team behind the stunning animated film Loving Vincent... That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio
1: 360.
2: Loving Vincent is an animated film entirely done in the style of Van Gogh's paintings. And it's not just computerized digital trickery. Every frame is an individual oil painting based on live action footage starring well-known actors like Saoirse Ronan, who people know from the movie Brooklyn. These actors move through a world of Van Gogh paintings come to life. Their faces still recognizable, but painted as if by Van Gogh from particular portraits he actually painted. The filmmakers are Dorota Kobiela and Hugh Welchman, and they're here to talk about their fascinating and Beautiful film. Dorota, Hugh. Whose idea was this in the first place and why?
7: Not guilty.
0: <laughs> okay, so that's me then. Uh, it uh, started off as a short film idea 10 years ago, the short film that I would entirely paint it myself. Uh, it was meant to be seven-minute film, and uh, this idea to paint a uh, film came out because I was passionate about painting and educated and graduated with fine arts, but worked uh, for hire for films and uh-huh. uh, animation. So you were
2: a painter when you were—that uh, was your education. Was yes,
0: yes, but I was working for film and, and uh, animation, and I was missing painting, so I wanted to combine these two passions.
2: So Hugh, you, you you hooked up. Dorota lives and has worked in Poland. You sound like, oh, I'd
7: say somewhere in the U.K., that would be an educated guess, and you'd be <laughs> correct. Well, actually, I hooked up with Dorota first, and then then I hooked up with her project, because uh, we're actually married, and I fell in love with Dorota. And then I was uh, looking over her shoulder, and I fell in love with her project, because I thought what she was doing was fantastically beautiful. And I thought it was such an incredible idea that that we should try and do it as a feature film, because we just get a much bigger audience. And I thought that there was enough story in Van Gogh's turbulent and troubled life for a feature film. Can also, I say
2: Van Gogh, by the way? not Van Gogh, and pronounce it correctly. Is that okay?
7: It is correct. You're, you're pronouncing it the American way. I know. I, oh, I'm, I'm an American. I'm pronouncing it the English way, and good. the English way is also wrong. So oh, so uh, <laughs> the, the actual uh, pronunciation is Van Gogh. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say that. <laughs> that um, That's the Dutch way.
2: Um, and, and so, Dorota, you had the idea of doing it in this Van Goghian style. Is that right? <laughs>
0: Uh, Yes, the idea was to create a film that will be entirely painted and to tell the story through his art. Very literal translation of his letters when he says, we cannot speak other than by our paintings.
7: Right. And that's actually the letter that was found on his body um, after he died. Right. So your story is about
2: the end of his life and the murky circumstances of his death, which I wasn't even aware of until this biography in 2011 came out sort of saying, no, he didn't kill himself, he was murdered. And uh, you don't definitively decide what the circumstances were, but you had this kind of rush among like people remembering. Maybe it was this. He seemed it didn't seem crazy to me. Nah, he was crazy. Once you decided, okay, this isn't going to be a seven-minute film. This is going to be a long film. Did you did you say, oh? the the mystery of his death. That's the story.
0: Yes, uh, even on the seven minute film, there was a uh, this concept at the beginning that the characters will have different theories on his death, and then uh, we spo- started talking about this with Hugh, and we were actually really fighting about the subject.
2: You and Hugh were fighting. Yeah, I mean, he we, has different we...
0: theories about the his mental state, different theory about the death, and so the first idea was always around the uh, mystery about his death. Right. Uh, so we were asking questions. Why it happened?
4: And the why ta- it happened then? then yeah.
0: Because it wasn't that obvious. I mean, Vincent, everything seemed... It it seemed to be going well. He was calm, he was
2: happy.
7: (laughs) Well, I mean, he seemed to have a better situation than, than over much of his adult life. So why, at that particular time, would he commit suicide? We found many different theories, including that he was driven to suicide, that he was heartbroken. There was far too many theories for us to put in the film, but we took the ones that had some credibility and we present it to the audiences and we investigate this and... Uh, people come out of our film thinking different things so we we have people come out and have arguments about what happened to him based upon seeing the film yeah people hear on edge about vincent about what happened to him everyone has a different story Tangi, the paint supplier said that vincent shot himself in the field so does the girl from the inn it seems a very long way for him to have walked with a mortal wound (laughs) And I wonder, if he wanted
3: to
5: kill himself, why didn't he just pick up the gun and finish the job? Did he change his mind?
7: Did he want to live after all?
2: That's Douglas Booth playing Armand Roulon, the film's protagonist, who was a real person Van Gogh actually painted. And in your film, he's trying to get to the bottom of this mystery of the death so you filmed Booth along with the rest of the cast performing the whole thing in live action, like normal actors in a movie.
7: And then you did what with that footage? How, how did the painters animate what you had shot? Uh, on a screen in front of a canvas, there was uh, the, the live action footage, and the painter would look at it, and reimagine it into Van Gogh style, and then once uh, they'd done that first frame, which is an oil painting on canvas, they would paint over the, on the same canvas until the end of the shot. So, what we when we watch this film and we see the bits and pieces of the sky and everything moving, that is
2: the 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 process of making the painting animated frame by frame. Yes. Ah, now I get it. Stop motion. Now yeah. I get it. It's stop motion, yes. Yeah. Um, so other than each of
7: these frames were done in oil
2: paint at this large size, is it, is it radically different than the way they... Other no, I make mean, animation?
7: we're using techniques uh, that have all been used in the past, but we're just putting them together in a different way. And uh, we just invented the slowest form of animation. So, <laughs> yes. um, or probably filmmaking altogether. Yes. Yeah. Um. You had this army of painters, mostly in Poland, I guess, or all in Poland. Mostly. We north, we had a small yeah. unit in Athens as well.
2: A uh, 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 hundred, more than a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find them? Were they just, oh, can you paint? Good, you're hired.
0: <laughs> That'd be great, uh, but it wasn't uh, uh, so easy. We started with 20 painters. Uh, that was our core crew. Uh, we worked together for a half a year before we started uh, hiring more painters. And, and uh, those, those
7: 20 painters, we had a thousand applications yeah. from within Poland. And um, uh, Dorota and Piotr, the head of painting, uh, went through all the portfolios and we invited, um, I think,
0: audition. A,
7: a, a couple of hundred people, I think around 300 people from Poland. And, and were they, they fine artists, illustrators,
2: fine everything? Artists,
0: yeah. uh, mostly, although we, we had a
7: one car mechanic. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he's a, ge- he's a pretty much... Did he get a, hired? He's a genius, He's yeah. a genius. I mean, he's an, he's an amazing painter. You hired him? Yeah, 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 yeah. He not only made beautiful artwork having had no training, he also used and to And what, make is, it what is the genius
2: car mechanic's name?
7: V- Voldek. So I want to play one more clip from the film.
2: This is Joachim Tanhaf as Van Gogh reading from a letter that Van Gogh uh, actually wrote early in his career.
5: Who am I? in the eyes of most people. A nobody. A non-entity. An unpleasant person. Someone who has not and never will have any position in society. In short, the lowest of the low. Well then, even if that were all absolutely true, And one day, I would like to show by my work what this nobody, this non entity, has in his heart.
2: I just talked to the filmmaker of a movie about J.D. Salinger, who said Salinger would hate this biopic. What do you think Van Gogh would make of this?
7: I think Vincent would be embarrassed that so many people were paying attention to him and spending years bringing his his work to
2: that life. That his and
0: reaction for the Mercury de France essay, actually, you know, he was... Uh,
2: Which was this big thing this saying, big hey, he's thing. a star. He, he's yeah.
0: a star. He's a genius. And he said, I didn't deserve it. There are people, the painters, artists who deserve that more than me. But this should still be about Monticelli. Would, uh, this should be
7: about Gauguin.
0: But still, he would carry this piece of newspaper in his jacket and, and write a letter every day about it to his brother.
7: Yeah. So. So, so his mom, his sister. He copied out the article so and sent it to. He would hate of it, but he maybe, would he? <laughs> maybe <laughs> exactly. love it. Yeah, no, I think, so. I
0: think what what I think is uh, Vincent wanted to create a colony of artists, and that was his dream in Yellow House. And all of a sudden, we had the painters who were all connected by his art, and they were all together. And some of them, you know, um, got this job for uh, to to realize their dreams to work through paintings. That's the part of this production and this film, this whole uh, project. That Regular he would, people, uh,
7: artists. Yes, uh, yeah. That we brought, would, we brought artists together. He would yeah. have loved bringing yeah. artists together. Uh, Love the fact that we gave them gainful employment for years. The main thing he wanted to do was communicate with people, um, and he would be blown away if he saw how many people are responding to to. Yeah. Th- what he threw out there into the world. Um, Dorota Cobiola and Hugh Welchman, thank you very, very much.
0: Thank you so much for having yeah. us.
2: A pleasure. Dorota and Hugh are the filmmakers behind Loving Vincent, which I really enjoyed and is rolling out in theaters across the country this fall. For more information on where you can see Loving Vincent, visit our website, pri.org slash studio360. Pittsburgh has always been a source of inspiration for the novelist Michael Chabon. His first novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, is set there. It is a coming of age story that he began writing when he was still in college, in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University. Coming of age himself. At the time, this was in the early 1980s, Pittsburgh was home to a very robust punk music scene. Chabon was riveted by that music as a college freshman particularly by a band called Carsickness.
6: I saw Carsickness play for the first time in the fall of 1980, somewhere on campus at Carnegie Mellon University, where I was a freshman. I'd listened to their self-released EP, Police Dog, about 107 times by then, and I found their live show unaccountably stirring, because there was nothing that seemed likely to cause a stir about the five guys who made up the band. They had on jeans, t-shirts, sneakers. One of them wore a cardigan. A couple of the guys verged, particularly when it came to the way they wore their hair, on the unkempt, but most of them looked, frankly, a lot like CMU engineering students. None looked even remotely in the fall of 1980 like punks. Good night. This came very much as a relief to me, I remember. I was kind of afraid of punks, or at any rate, I was going to be afraid of them, I believed, if I ever actually met any. They did not have punks in the suburban Maryland town where I'd grown up and bought my first Clash, Blondie, and the Jam records. A dude on my dormitory hall, Donner, A-Level, West, introduced me to Carsickness' music soon after we arrived at CMU. His name was John Fetkovich, but people called him Fetko. And he was the first, but by no means the last, ninth-level grandmaster of rock fandom I ever met. His knowledge was deep, wide, and intricately hyperlinked. He could steer you from the Velvet Underground, to David Bowie, to Uriah Heep, to Pere Ubu, to Patti Smith to Bruce Springsteen in one listening session without ever departing his zone of musical happiness. He was an engineering major, bespectacled, small of stature, generous with his knowledge and the record collection that dominated milk crate by pilfered milk crate every available corner of the FETCO half of his shared dorm room. In short order, he managed to secure a slot on WRCT, the campus radio station.
7: Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WRCT, Pittsburgh,
6: and in time became a vigorous champion of the bands that had begun to ooze and bubble up from dark subterranean seams all over America: Husker Du, X, Black Flag, The Minutemen, Meat Puppets, etc. There was a certain air of muppetry about Fetco. He spoke in brief, precise declaratives, with a Jim Henson gulp in his voice, bobbing his head for emphasis. If you like punk, he had told me soon, like minutes after we first met, you should check out carsickness. He bobbed his head. They're from here, and they're great. I went out and bought the aforementioned EP, a seven-inch with grainy, xeroxed cover art. It had four songs, among them the local hit, Bill Wilkinson, a takedown of a prominent white supremacist with a slinking game show organ and a radio-hostile, anti-fascist chorus. Bill Wilkinson, Bill Wilkinson, you better watch out. Bill Wilkinson, Bill Wilkinson, you better watch out. You look so stupid in your eyes and bite. Around with the flashes burning up night. What do you say? Tight, Kai f you. What do you say? Tight, f you. As I said, I loved it. But did I like punk? And were Car Sickness a punk band? Even apart from their suspiciously clean cut look no mohawks, no safety pins, not much leather in evidence there was the matter of their sound. A cursory listen yielded little in the way of the kind of blunt, buzzing, major chord, drums, bass, guitar attack formulated by the Ramones and codified in the UK that by 1980 had already become conventionalized as punky. Nor did the group embrace the ironic, nostalgic Shanana meets Artaud pastiche vibe. Warhol's glam drag queens filtered through the New York dolls that characterized the sound of many of the New York punk bands. Instead, Carsickness played songs that were rhythmically complicated, sonically adventurous, and instrumentally distinctive. Saxophones. Guitarists who could double on keyboards. With their drummer, Dennis Childers laying down tricky time signatures and the rest of the band managing very nicely, thank you, to keep up. Their songs wandered in and out of genres, often in the course of a single track, and the band was not afraid now and then, in their own spiky, frustrated way, to swing. At times, car sickness seemed, to my ear, to verge on jazz or even could it be, on Prague. They made music as hyperlinked and omnivorous, as disrespectful of boundaries, as the musical taste of John Fetkovich, or any ninth-level grandmaster of rock fandom. Their lyrics were fueled by righteous political anger, but their frontman, Joe Soap, often sounded a lot like Joe Strummer at his most drunken. The plaintive, heartbroken Strummer of The Right Profile and the final 30 seconds of Hate and War. In Pittsburgh... In 1980, they were playing a music that didn't yet have and would never really find a name, post-punk. In fact, it might be argued that in their restlessness to move musically, if not politically, beyond the stupid is smart aesthetic of punk, carsickness invented post-punk in Pittsburgh. Just as Husker Du and Gang of Four and Mission of Burma and Sonic Youth were busy restlessly inventing it in Minneapolis, London, Boston, and New York. Just as, a few years later, bands in Pittsburgh that were made up of post-post-punks like me and my friends, kids who loved The Birthday Party and Wire but refused to stop listening to their Black Sabbath records, would spontaneously evolve a kind of heavy, heavy music that was called, as a Seattle-obsessed national media would in time inform us, grunge. This is the moral of the story of Pittsburgh rock and roll, over and over again. If you want musical immortality, move somewhere else. I didn't know in the fall of 1980 that there was something called post-punk. But I could tell, anybody could, that Car Sickness were moving in another direction. They had pulled up stakes and struck out for some hinterland beyond the kingdom of punk. Even 35, good lord, years later, you can still hear it in the songs on this record. The sound of five young men united for a time by a sense of adventure. The sound That stirred me that fall day in Pittsburgh, the city where my own life's adventure truly began. It's the sound of my youth and yours whenever you were born, wherever you came of age, however, you came into possession of the restlessness that is
2: our common inheritance. That's the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Michael Chabon remembering the band Car Sickness. He first wrote that piece about the band in the liner notes for the album Car Sickness, 1979 to 1982. Tommy Bazarian produced that story. When we were chatting with Michael about his college life he told us that he wasn't just a fan of Pittsburgh punk. He was a player, which frankly sort of surprised me since affable, soft-spoken Michael and his magnificently crafted fiction seemed the opposite of punk.
6: Yeah, yes. We had a band called The Bats that um, we did our own EP, and it was actually released on the same label, or Mind Cure Records, which is a small label in Pittsburgh. They put it out about maybe... I want to say two years ago, they an LP on vinyl of what we did this one time we went into the studio. It's me singing, quote unquote.
2: I wanted to play more of Michael Chabon's punk career, but coming up. Charlotte, he moaned. Charlotte, my true friend. That is the great E.B. White reading his brilliant children's book, Charlotte's Web. Come now, let's not make a scene, said the spider.
6: Be quiet, Wilba. Stop thrashing about. But I can't stand this, shouted Wilba. I won't leave you here alone to die.
2: You know what? You never outgrow great children's literature. And I'll have the author Bruce Handy and his kids and my kids in here to talk about that next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio
1: 360.
8: And when he came to the place where the wild things are, They roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. Till Max said, be still, and tamed with the magic trick of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. And they were frightened and called him the most wild thing of all. And made him king of all wild things. And now, cried Max, let the wild rumpus start.
2: That, of course, is from Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. If you're under 60 or so, you might remember hearing that being read to you as a kid. But have you ever thought to reread it as an adult? That is the idea behind a terrific new book by the journalist and critic Bruce Handy. I've known Bruce since the 1980s when I hired him as an editor and writer, practically a kid himself at the time, at Spy Magazine. His new book is called... Wild Things, the joy of reading children's literature as an adult. I invited Bruce to join me in a conversation with the children we know best, our kids. Zoe and Isaac Handy and Kate and Lucy Anderson are patiently waiting in the control room, and they'll join us to talk about reading kids' books as young grown ups. But first, just us paterfamiliases. Bruce Handy, welcome to Studio 360. Well, thank
8: you so much, Kurt. I'm so glad to be here.
2: So how did you come up with the idea for this book? I mean, it really came out of,
8: of having kids and reading to the kids. And, you know, like a lot of families, we had this nice nighttime ritual. But I, I found that I was actually really getting interested in the, in the books and a kind of a critical or – slash intellectual or, you know, even just kind of emotional or entertaining way.
2: You you talk of, uh, about, in the book, of this moment when you're reading out loud to your children. Well, you realize that they have this entirely different emotional resonance, the premise of your book. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, the, when I was
8: reading them, um, The House of Pooh Corner.
2: Yes. But, yeah, we get to the last chapter, and, it, you know, it's never really made
8: explicit, but, you know, Christopher Robin is being sent off to boarding school. He's like, I don't know, however old he's 10 or whatever you are when you— off. And he, he, there's this just heart-wrenching scene where he has, you know, he sits down with Pooh and he's basically breaking up with Pooh and he's telling you, you know, Pooh, I, I can't see you anymore. And Pooh
7: doesn't really, you know, Pooh just doesn't get it. Pooh, promise you won't forget about me, ever. Not even when I'm a hundred. Pooh thought for a little. How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. Pooh nodded. I promise, he said. Still with his eyes on the world... Christopher Robin put out a hand and felt for Pooh's paw. Pooh, said Christopher Robin earnestly, if I. if I'm not quite. He stopped and tried again. Pooh, whatever happens, you will understand, won't you? Understand what? Oh, nothing. He laughed and jumped to his feet. Come on. Where? said Pooh. Anywhere, said Christopher Robin. Yeah,
8: I mean, I was reading it to them. And I was just, you know, like, bawling. And it's clearly this whole thing about kind of leaving childhood behind. And I'm, I'm, a, like, I have to confess that I'm a sucker for that. You know, it's like I, I still, like, if you played Puff the Magic Dragon, I would totally. I would get teary. I mean, that just, you know, that, that I, stuff kills me.
2: And, and, no, me too. This It is the parent-child thing, and children growing up is the one, one of the reliable things that can make me choke up.
8: I, and I think I, I try to make this case in the, in the book that, um, you know, that I think these, these should be considered as seriously as, as many people consider, you know, graphic novels and comic books and, and comic strips. If a graphic novel is prose, you know, a novel, then these are kind of the graphic Version of poetry, you know, something maybe like Goodnight Moon so simple or Cool One of a Haiku or something. Which yeah.
2: You write about how when you first read Where the Wild Things Are as a child, it really wasn't a favorite.
8: I just didn't get it, you know where the wild things are, suddenly the the vines start growing in his room, and it's this very sort of strange dream logic and it just didn't interest me really and then
2: to Freudian,
8: but yeah, but now the exactly as, as an adult that's what's so fascinating about it because it is so Freudian and and it is you know it is dream logic, and suddenly I find that compelling and also having kind of anger and expressed in this yeah this beautiful dreamy dreamy way, and it yeah it suddenly spoke to me in a way it just
2: Hadn't as a kid. When you read it to your children or, or when you were just doing this book?
8: Like a lot of these books, like Night Moon also, we were, we were given as, uh, you know, baby gifts. I, I was very excited then to read it to them. And the sort of the punchline of my story is that they didn't really like it that much either any more than I had yeah. it did. So
2: give, give them a decade or two. Yeah. And, and you really don't like a, one of the most beloved children's books of the last 50 years, which is uh, The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. Oh.
8: That book is the most divisive book, I think, of sort of grand, you know, children's literature. I mean, it's, yeah, it seems like it's a real love it or hate it. I mean, yeah, I just find it, you know, maudlin and, and sort of punishing. And,
2: and. Um, A book, however, that deals with, with this, some of the issues of, that uh, The Giving Tree does, death and loss, uh, beautifully, of course, is E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, which you talk about. This is a clip of E.B. White oh, yeah. reading Charlotte's Web. Charlotte, he moaned. Charlotte,
6: my true friend. ''Come now, let's not make a scene,'' said the spider. ''Be quiet, Wilbur. Stop thrashing about.'' ''But I can't stand this,'' shouted Wilbur. ''I won't leave you here alone to die. If you're going to stay here, I shall stay too.'' ''Don't be ridiculous,'' said Charlotte. ''You can't stay here. Zuckerman and Lurvie and John Arable and the others will be back any minute now, and they'll shove you into that crate, and away you'll go. Besides, it wouldn't make any sense for you
2: to stay.'' There would be no one to feed you. The fairgrounds will soon be empty and deserted. That's E.B. White reading his great uh, book, Charlotte's Web.
8: So well written. It's so well, I mean, E.B. Well, uh, e. White. But it's, you know, it's just so beautifully crafted. Like the first line is like, pa, where are you going with that ax? There's the theme right there. You know, this is a book about life and death. You know, again, I think that's a good example too because I think he didn't set out to like, I'm going to write a book about Spider who saves a, a pig in the circle of life you know he, he was he was very um, spent a lot of time on a farm, he was very you know involved kind of emotionally with his animals. he spent a lot of time in his barn and I think some of the meaning of the story came out of what he was interested in as a person you know the way themes should emerge out of out of a great adult novel.
2: One of the things I love about this book of yours is that I, l- I learned these things about the authors that good night moon, one of my favorites of all time and and Runaway bunny which I got to say, I love even more. We're both by the same person. Tell us some more about Margaret Wise Brown.
8: Yeah, I literally thought, I, I kind of envisioned her as the old lady you know, whispering hush, but she actually looked a lot like Carol Lombard, and, and she kind of had a screwball comedy kind of life in the 30s. She was kind of involved in cafe society.
2: And... and- She didn't have children. She didn't go all gooey for them, apparently, Uh, which is also true of Maurice Sendak, which is also true of Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss. What do you make of that, that this is a motif among beloved children's authors? Yeah,
8: You know, Margaret Wise Brown, she said, um, you know, to write for children, you don't have to like children. You just have to like what children like.
2: Well, I think it's time to invite these grown-up children of ours into the studio to talk more about what it was they liked. Isaac and Zoe Handy, welcome.
1: Hello. Oh, hello. Thank you for having you. us.
2: Kate and Lucy Anderson, welcome.
1: Hello, Dad. Thank you. Hi.
2: So, because I'm a decade older than you, Bruce, mm-hmm. my children are, too, uh, approximately a decade older than your children, uh, because we're just conventional people who do things at the age you're supposed to, I guess. Yeah. Um. But Isaac and Zoe, you're in college,
5: both of you? Yes. I'm about to be a senior.
3: I'm a freshman. Have you read this book?
5: I have read his book. Okay. Um, all of it. I think Isaac has, too, a little bit.
3: I've read parts of it. I haven't. Just, mostly just fact-checking. Fact yeah. Got to keep him in line. Yes. <laughs> right. One of the
2: books your dad
3: discusses is Goodnight,
2: Moon.
0: Goodnight, little house. And Goodnight, mouse. Goodnight, comb. And Goodnight, brush. Goodnight, nobody. Goodnight, mush. And Goodnight to the old lady whispering hush. Goodnight, stars. Good night, air. Good night, noises everywhere.
2: So, uh, Zoe and Isaac, do you remember being read this by your (laughs) choking-up, sentimental father?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I do. I remember lots of good night, moon. We have this rocking chair in our room. I remember, like, my dad just like sitting there, going back and forth.
3: He definitely read it a lot. Uh, It probably wasn't. Mine are my sister's favorite, but it was always his.
2: You so. let the old man indulged him in his in his delight in reading it. S- somebody had to.
8: We always laughed at Goodnight Mush, though. Do you remember that? I do remember Goodnight Mush?
2: Yeah. But as adults now, or not quite adults, young adults, uh, d-
3: does it? Do you get it more now than you did it before? Not really. I see how much it, <laughs> I, see, I see. I see how much it means to my dad and. That makes it mean more to me because I see how much of an effect it had on him. But I can't ever really say that I felt the same.
2: So how about you, Kate and Lucy, now that you're adults? uh, Do you have any retrospective thoughts about Goodnight Moon?
1: I mean, I I think the illustrations are super beautiful. And I think as I've evolved into the adult I am and doing design and art in different ways, uh, I definitely appreciate that more. And how about you, Kate? I would agree with that, uh, and I would also add on that I think I've become conscious of one of the reasons I liked it so much, which is our house took up a lot of the aesthetic of Goodnight Moon. We had your green office that we read in, and there was a lot of striped fabrics in our house, and I think retrospectively I can see how those two things combine to make me kind of like it more than I might have How in interesting.
2: Way. I never thought of that. Um, so any any children's books that you have read as a kid— uh, and that you've looked at since that that you, you now have a different emotional resonance with?
5: In the course of my dad writing this book, I just revisited The Runaway Bunny. And I think as a rising college senior with the angst of having to, like, really leave home and, like, um, all of the emotions and fears and anxieties that come with real adulthood being on the horizon, I think I was a little bit more moved by that book than I was maybe when I was a little kid.
2: And, of course, the Runaway Bunnies thing is that this maternal presence is always going to bring you back no matter what happens.
8: That means you're going to move back in.
5: uh, (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Uh, Oh, no, no. I love my parents so much. They're so wonderful. Um, But I do know that they're always there for me, and they will be there to support me no matter what.
2: (laughs) Bruce, your book obviously uh, couldn't include everybody's favorite books from childhood like Babar the Elephant and, of course, Harry Potter. On the J.K. Rowling uh, front, did you decide not to include uh, Harry Potter because they've been written about so much already? Yeah, I think the more I
8: got into it, and it was, you know, partly since this book is about, hey, adults can read these, Read these books, you know I guess that's the elevator pitch, but Harry Potter is already so widely read by adults, and you know the Times you know Michiko Kakatani would be reviewing the new one. you know there the, were
2: articles at the time of the first ones about, oh, look, adults reading yeah. Harry Potter on the subway, and I got to admit i I sort of disapproved of that, uh-huh. as much as I liked reading them myself, yeah, when I saw grown ups reading them, I thought really. <laughs>
8: I'm curious for for all four of you who, if you two reread the uh, the Harry Potter books as as well, I'm curious. Like having read these books again and again, what what do you what do you see new in them as you each time you read it? I mean, have you have you discovered things as you've aged that that are more interesting or about them? Uh, Ron and Hermione's
2: sexual tension,
1: <laughs> palpable.
2: And Kate, you are now a true adult. Uh, you still read a lot of. Fantasy. I read fiction. a lot of
1: the books that would make you cringe on the subway. Yeah. Not, no,
2: no. <laughs> you, fa- you read a lot of fantasy fiction. Books
1: with maps in them.
2: And, and and does that feel like oh I'm I'm still holding on to some child part of myself to you or just these are the books I like?
1: No, um, I mean, not consciously. We can examine that later. But I I just like those in books. therapy. Yeah, you mean? exactly. Um, you know, your wife reads those books too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just like them. I like adventure. I like fantasy. I like sci-fi. I, I kind of consider them my fun books, and then I usually alternate between my fun books and my proper books so that I'm getting a an equal intake. But those are the books that I just rip through in, like, two days and, and love them.
2: Uh, Zoe and Isaac, your mother is the very accomplished novelist, Helen Schulman. Growing up, did you guys think of books differently than the average kid because your parents
3: were both writers? Uh, well, we always we were always kind of like the book family, like— Every birthday, we'd be like the only family that we'd give everybody books, and we were like the only families that did that. And well, did that make you well liked or not? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you tell me. So, <laughs> um, no, none of
2: you young people are young enough to have been totally in the age of the iPad. Books were the thing. You you didn't really read on screens. What, what do you feel like if and when any of you have children? Are are, are physical children's books going to be a thing you keep going in 2034 or whenever it is you have children?
1: It'd be a little late, but... Uh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Lucy, when are you having children, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,
1: uh, but yes, if and when I have children, I think... Um, I think physical books are important. Purely from a, like, I think a home without books is weird. Uh, and I whether you read it once and put it on the shelf and never, you know, look at it again is fine. I just think that books are pretty key. And I do think there's something to be said about sort of the the closure one gains and the sense of satisfaction from closing a book.
2: I have done my work well. <laughs> uh, and, Zoe and Isaac, you feel like you're going to, if and when you have children, that the books will still be
3: part of it? I don't really feel like I'm going to have much of a choice. Like, I can just, like, imagine, like, the day, like, my children are born, the first thing Dad's going to do when he comes in the room is he's going to bring in a pile of, like, 20 books with, like... (laughs) Good night, Good night Moon and, like, all the Dr. Seusses. Yeah, so. our, ch-
5: our children are absolutely getting copies of Good Night Moon from okay. my parents. Yes. For what
1: it's worth, I actually do have children's books in my bookshelves in my apartment, so it's probably already a done deal. Well, <laughs> and the
2: next uh, version of this is we'll talk about stuffed animals, which is a whole <laughs> other <laughs> adult thing that I have my doubts about. But anyway, um, uh, Zoe, Isaac, Kate, Lucy, and Bruce Handy, uh, thank you all for being here.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. us. Thank you.
2: Bruce Handy's new book, Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult, is available everywhere. And thanks to our readers, Alex Galifant, Leon Nafok, and June Thomas. That's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn
1: Gonzalez.
2: Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim.
1: Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders.
2: Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is...
1: Claude gallette
2: I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Good night, stars. Good night, air. Good night, noises everywhere.
5: PRI. Public Radio International.
2: Next time in Studio 360... Nurse Ratched speaks out.
3: How many people in positions of power feel that they
2: know best? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is our next episode of Studio 360's American Icons from Public Radio International in association with Slate.